Welcome to episode 134 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made of opinions of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our, our love and passion for Linux. I'm Michael, and with me today are the titans of Linux, Noah, Ryan, and Derek. So Zeb is on holiday this week, so we've invite, invited a special guest host. Uh, this is Derek from DistroTube. Welcome to the show, Derek. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, for those who are not who don't, may not know Derek, he runs a very popular YouTube channel called DistroTube, which he started in 2017. The channel is focused on Linux from app reviews, terminal and command line tutorials, uh, desktop environments, window manager tutorials, news, occasional live streams, and he's a huge proponent of the i3 window manager. <laughs> <laughs> well, that last part, that I part, may yeah, that. Have added. That, have that part might be a little bit exaggeration. I3 is okay. It's, it's not Xmonad, though. <laughs> That's fair. He's a longtime friend of the show and frequently pops up to, to taunt us in our live streams and our gaming events. So anyway, welcome to the, sh to the show, Derek. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Right, so what, is, what have you been up to, Derek? Well, this week I have been window manager hopping a little bit. So I had been running GNOME for the last two weeks, and I recently moved to BSPWM, a, a tiling window manager. One I haven't tried, so I've kind of been playing with that the last three or four days, struggling, trying to get that configured. So that's been my, my Linux experience this week. Uh, nice. That's about it for me. Yeah. Nice. So Noah, how have you been this week? I have been, my week started off pretty bad, and then Linux saved it right in the middle, ZFS to be specific. So uh, I had a drive failure this week, and uh, my NAS went offline. And, uh, but thanks to, free, well, it actually didn't go offline. It just, all it did was spit up a little message that said, Hey, I'm in a deprecated state. You should probably do something about that. By the way, I'll continue to serve your data up just fine. So nothing uh, comes to a stop. And it did just that until I got an eight terabyte drive. I didn't even have to overnight it. It just, I just Amazoned it and whenever it showed up, it showed up. And then I, it actually sat around for a little bit and I finally got into putting the drive in there, but it led me down this path of like, I realized that my whole life I've been saving all of these little digital things and because they're local, I have them and I'm able to show them to my kids. And my wife and I got into this conversation talking about how the vast majority of parents, they take all these pictures on Google Cloud or Apple Cloud or whatever, and if and when they meet their death, all of a sudden, all of that data just vanishes after the account has been inactive for so long because all, that, all, that, all those pictures, all those family moments are all stored in the cloud. And of course, all of mine are stored on a NAS. So it's twice as important to me to keep my NAS uh, running well. But the other side of that is I've, I have like this newfound, uh, I guess, inspiration to try to help people take control over their data. Yeah, well, have you tried uh, Facebook and Google? Because even after you die, they'll love you forever and keep all your photos and tag them for you and name every person in your family. Kind it's of. They, they will keep them for you and they'll be stored safely on an NSA secure archive as well as Facebook's data uh, <laughs> mining system and Apple's mining system and Google's mining system. But uh, you won't have access to them, I guess is kind of what I was getting at. I yeah, should have I I led with that. I, I, I want photos that my kids can see, not for some creep at the NSA to... See, how dare you call us creeps? Well, so it sounds like you're saying we all need to have a NAS. Yes. Everybody should have a, a local NAS disconnected from the Internet, just available for you to enjoy your data. I actually I agree. And my NAS is currently disconnected from the Internet. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, that's good. Uh, thing. Michael's NAS is sitting up on his shelf. Disconnected, not plugged in. Disconnected but from the power as well. Right. It is technically <laughs> very secure. Yeah, yes. it is. No one can <laughs> hack into it. <laughs> Nobody's in fact, getting you, like, would, you, would, you, you might even be able to call that 
a coal, a, a uh, an air gapped NAS. Exactly. That's exactly. the only air gapped NAS in existence. It could be a video. It's not attached storage via yeah. the network. It's disattached <laughs> network storage. Exactly. So so Ryan, what have you been up to this week? So I had a really fun week. I've got something that uh, you guys actually talked about quite a bit on the show, so much so that I pre-ordered it, and I have received, I think, one of the first ones out of the Raspberry Pi, and let me see if I can get the camera to work right, Flirk case here. Nice. So this is the new Uh, case. You definitely do not have the first one. Yes, I do. Shut up. This (laughs) is the Raspberry Pi 4. Uh, Flirt case here. It's super nice. So they've done some things as well in this case um, to work around the heat dissipation issues for Raspberry Pi. In fact, on the very top of the case, there's actually a little concave piece of aluminum that comes down and touches on a thermal pad that you install onto the CPU of the Raspberry Pi, and that helps to dissipate the heat through the case itself which I thought was pretty unique. It looks beautiful. You know, it's got that nice aluminum shell. Mm-hmm. It's super easy to build. My son, who is six, built it this morning with the Raspberry Pi. And right now I'm going to use it as a file sharing system. But the Flirt case uh, that you all recommended, I had not used one before this, definitely worthy of a recommendation. It's a fantastic case all around for the Raspberry yeah. Pi. Much better than the plasticky cases that you normally see. Yeah, it looks uh, like a solid, like once you have it set up, it looks like a solid set-top box that you just got. because it, the, Yeah, the case it's is got so some nice, nice weight to it, and all the details are there. Rubberized feet, just, you it, know, every... It looks little- like the kind of case that if the Raspberry Pi were a product sold by, like, in a Best Buy store, that's what the case, that's the kind of case the Raspberry Pi would come in. Yeah. Yep. That's right. the best way I can think to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yep. pretty awesome. So, that's what I've been spending my week uh, playing with. And also, you know, my son, he decided that uh, he wanted to learn baseball. So out of nowhere. So I had to go outside and throw baseballs and buy baseball stuff and watch baseball. So apparently I'm into sports now, too. Somehow I have to figure out how to turn the baseball hobby that he likes into some kind of Linuxy thing. So I'm working on that, too. So we got an email this week. It states, Michael and crew, firstly, and most importantly, thank you for your dedication, your work in the Destination Linux podcast, and more is greatly appreciated. To be honest, DL is all I have direct experience of, but that is enough to know I owe you and your co-hosts a debt of gratitude. I seem to recall you had a promo code for DigitalOcean in one of your shows. Check the website and the link is not there. Michael? Really, Michael? It's on every episode. Dist- okay, well, it, I don't know. It's, it should be. I guess I should put it on the main page, like on the sidebar or something, because it is. See, this is why we need our comments. See, that, that is why the comments are useful. Yes, thank you for yep. sending the email. <laughs> so he goes on to add, my wife knits for a living, a natural coder, but... Knits? She knits yeah. for a living? Knits for a living. And he said she's a natural coder because of that. So I've never related the two, but that's interesting. And it lets me lead with computing technically. I want to get our little self-employed family of home educators a droplet to host WordPress and Nextcloud on. Um, Maybe LBRY and Diaspora and all got to look into all of this yet. I'm a heavy Inkscape user for graphic design mostly, but also laser cutting at my local hackerspace in Calderdale. Turns out that SVG is read read almost as well as DXF on proprietary HP laser cutter software, but is darn near free in comparison to AutoCAD. That's pretty awesome. I'm currently getting to grips with FreeCAD with the intention of doing some serious uh, printing work in ceramics. I want to learn Python to complement FreeCAD, but also teach my three daughters all under the age of 10 
any advice there would be useful. I'm keeping it short, Zeb. I'm skint, but if you drop a digibyte address, I'll scoot a few over. I think that must be Zeb talk. We need him here to probably yeah, I'm not translate sure what that means. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anonymously, but sincerely, symbolic M. Yorkshire battle cry, ow much. So there you go. Well, Zeb is not here, unfortunately, to translate the email, but as far as him using the HP laser cutter here and doing some free CAD based printing work. Anybody have any experience um, that they could give him as well as getting as, as far as getting his daughters into uh, this line of, of learning? I mean, as far as like the best thing is that he's already started that they, that he goes to a, a hacker space and that's the best way to get experience in that because you can use the free CAD stuff and use their 3d printers at these, because a lot of hacker spaces have 3d printers, but you can share. Uh, and those are, those are awesome. And I'm, I'm glad to say that they're talking there. We're talking about learning the, the Python, uh, a raspberry Pi would be a good option for Python. I'm pretty sure that was the entire purpose originally for the Pi, for the raspberry Pi was the Python, uh, learning to, uh, tools that they had. And uh, if you if you're just wanting to learn some basic Python, if you don't know any Python, there's plenty of online uh, websites that have free courses you can sign up mm -hmm. to to learn Python. So he he should be able to to get his children on Python pretty quickly. Yeah, Python's yeah, the best beginner these, one. There's also a lot of kits I've noticed being sold. Now I'm not personally tried one of these, but I noticed they're actually making it into retail stores that utilize the Raspberry Pi specifically, and you're coding on them or at least learning to code, and they're made for kids. And I've seen them in the Target section where they sell the, you know, the small section where they sell computer hardware like keyboards and mice and things like that. But they're these little kits. They come with Raspberry Pi. Some of them are build your own laptop. Some of them are build a robot. And in there, they basically have kind of taken basic Python scripting and made it even more kid friendly where you're kind of dragging code over to make the robot and different things do the stuff you want it to do. And it may be a good introduction for kids uh, to start there. And then there's tons of apps on phones, tablets, of course, the computer that you can download that are all teach Python. Python's a really great language, I think, for kids and adults. It's a great language to learn as your first language because it's just very easy. It's, it's a much more familiar syntax than a lot of languages out there. Yeah, and it's also surprisingly powerful for something that's like really good for beginners. So you can learn it and then also, you know, you could actually do a lot of really powerful things and really flexible things with it, uh, but it is definitely the best one for beginners. Yep. My, uh, my eight-year-old uh, started Python as part of his actual school thing. That's one of the things they teach them uh, as far as like critical thinking skills nice. now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so he's digging into Python. What's great is like there are so many things that you can do in Python that like don't take a lot to really master. But there's like there's a there's some sort of code thing that allows you to take a pen and start at a given point, And then you can draw with the pen by giving it a series of coordinates. And so he learned how to do that. And he's like, look what I can do. And I'm like, wait, you can draw stuff with Python. Like, I didn't know that was a thing, but it's definitely a thing. It's very cool. Nice. It does seem like you can do pretty much anything with Python as far as there's so many libraries to it. Anything you can imagine, you could probably make work in Python. Yeah, and it's a great it's a great structure because you're learning like the basics of, of programming. And then you could, you know, utilize that into like the more, you know, um, like the hardcore low level latency stuff. Uh, but it's it's a really good starter point because it's 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 mostly in like a, it's like language based rather than symbol based. So it's a lot easier to learn.
We want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite Linux software, your tip, your trick. We'd love to know what tools make your Linux experience amazing. Is there perhaps a specific Linux topic you'd like us to try and cover? Well, send it to comments at destinationlinux.org. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux. I also th- I just noticed this. How, has this. Is that new, Ryan, where you have the, D- the DL Right. Well, after the email, I figured, you know, people were asking what the link is. I now have it uh, posting on Screenly every 15 seconds. It'll come by and show the do.co slash dl. So awesome. there you go. Awesome. Very nice. Very well done. A first in the show this week is Sparky Linux 2019.8. Sparky Linux has a new snapshot available for their semi-rolling release, which is their testing branch. And this is based on Bullseye or Debian, uh, Debian Bullseye, which will be Debian 11 at some point. And this uh, has a lot of changes in this, this release. They have uh, upgraded their uh, G- GCC. Um, but it's, it's still, the default's still to 8, but you can get 9 with this new release. You can also get their new Sparky 6 theme. They have added, uh, they've had a new icon set called Tela. They've upgraded and refreshed their desktop look, and they've replaced uh, LightDM with SDDM for their LXQt edition. And their main edition is pretty, is the LXQt edition. So I, I'm glad to see that because SDDM is mu- is much better for the Qt based uh, approach. LightDM is still pretty good, but it's not that's not really their focus with Qt. Uh, so anyway, Sparky has been around for a long time, and they have a structure of releasing based on when Debian releases. So like they have like their they have a version of Sparky Linux 5 and Sparky Linux 6. And 6 is essentially the deb- the testing version. And they have that version for a couple years in a beta, so- a beta form until Buster comes out. So, like, the first version of the stable release for, Debian- for Sparky 5 was 5.8, I think. And that was based on when Debian 10 Buster came out. So it's an interesting approach because they are, like... They're heavily focused on Debian, but then also like polishing Debian for like LSQ users and that kind of thing. So I think Sparky Linux is a really cool distro to check out. So let me ask in this is, you know, when I think about if I'm going to use Debian on a desktop and I, I want that modern look and feel and kind of some of the defaults that are in your standard Debian done for me. I think about MX Linux, obviously. Mm-hmm. Does anybody have a comparison or done a comparison between MX and Sparky? The last time I looked at it, it was it was good. And then I did a video on it. And then much later, people asked me, you got to try it again. And I liked it a lot more. Um, but is this one that you would recommend for those who want Debian, you know, a more updated version of Debian? I would say yes, but I, I mean, MX Linux is great because they have all these custom tools that they built around the Debian thing, and they have the multiple branches you can pull from. 
And Sparky has that in in some ways, but it's not as like their focus is not on polishing everything that how um, MX Linux is kind of doing it. Uh, Sparky is more like they have multiple DEs and they have multiple branches, but they focus on LXQt as their main DE offering. And I think that if you're looking for um, if you're looking at Debian based distro that has LXQt as your main thing. I think that Sparky is probably one of the better options for that because I'm pretty sure MX Linux doesn't even do LXQt, uh, and I think that LXQt no, is a XFCE by default. Yeah. yeah, I think they offer a couple, but the main uh, like the LXQt is a really nice DE, and it's also a really easy to set up with Sparky to get to start using that one because they have a, they've they've polished it up a little bit more than the default LXQt offers. So I think that if you're looking for um, if you're looking for LXQt and a Debian base, I think that uh, or a, a Debian, like pure Debian based, not like an Ubuntu derivative. Uh, I think that Sparky's quite good option. And Sparky would be a little closer to pure Debian than MX, which changes a lot because they have their own custom tools. Of course, they don't use System D and MX by default. Of course, you know Debian, of course, uses System D and Sparky's based off of uh, System D as right. well. Right. So if you want to be closer, yeah, more it's more closer to Debian in that sense. Like I think you like. You could use System D in MX Linux if you want to, but if you want to just have like if it's if you just want to like really close to Debian, but also LXQt, uh, Sparky is, is pretty good with that. And I think that uh, LXQt is one of those DEs that is not giving a lot of attention, but it is quite solid as an option. Yeah. So XFCE four point one four is being released today, the day that this is Sunday, the day we are filming this episode. So I am very excited. You know how much I love XFCE, and it's been a few years since we've had a new version here. So a lot of work we expect is going to be going into this version. Now, Simon Steinboss or Sean Davis, I've reached out to Sean Davis. He wants Simon to come on uh, to the show. So we'll either have one or the other, hopefully on Destination Linux next week, if we can work it out with the schedules. But until that time, I took uh, a few notes on some of the things that you can expect in XFCE 4.14. Of course, they've done some UI improvements. They're bringing lots of updates with bug fixes and other things, but better high DPI support, which is something I think any desktop environment if it's going to survive in Linux today better start having. So I'm really happy to see uh, they're improving the high DPI support, improvements to the management of color profiles. They have a lot of little bug fixes and things out there for the XFCE4 panel. Um, the display profile functionality has been improved and expanded to ensure a flicker-free experience. Uh, out there. And this is one of the things that when I first started in Linux, I think one of the number one topics that would constantly come up in the comment section was how do I stop my screen tearing or flickering and issues like that coming around. So uh, anything in this arena to continue to improve it, although I don't see those comments as often anymore. Um, but that certainly was a big issue a couple of years ago, but it looks like they're continuing to do some more improvements around that. They also are making Thunar, their file management tool, a lot more flexible in utilizing external drive mounts. So when you're mounting external drives, um, easier for it to see them and keep that external drive mounted in the future. So just kind of a lot of little tweaks. Uh, another fix they talked about was concerning the placement of new windows, which are now defaulting to the current display that has your mouse cursor on it versus nice. just going to whatever window uh, it happens to be set at. So I, I think there's just a lot of little tweaks and improvements here. It's going to be typical XFCE. I expect it to work 
immediately out of the box, have a fantastic experience and all around and just work. And that's kind of what XFC is known for. Uh, they do take a long time in between releases, but generally when you get stuff, it's fully fleshed out and pretty reliable right off the start. So I'm very excited and I can't wait to speak to Simon or Sean about some of the work that they're doing here. Yep. XFC, I think, is one of the most underrated desktops. It's one of those things where when you use it, and I've started using it on any machine that I don't use on a daily basis, like if it's something that's in production that I, I want to treat kind of like an appliance or something that I, I need to interface and, and do something on, but I, I, want it to, I want that machine to stay out of the way, XFCE has become the, the, the desktop environment I went to. And I, I got it as a recommendation uh, from Fred Gleason from Paravel Systems. And I, I asked him, he builds these $5,000 boxes, specifically uh, appliance boxes based on Linux. And I asked him why he chose XFCE. And he goes, it, it is the most, it is one of the most stable, reliable desktop environments out there. It's one of the most fastest ways to interface with the, with the Linux ecosystem. And so, uh, and, and ever since then, I've started using it. it it's worked out very well. Yeah. Well, one interesting thing about the, uh, the notes you covered there, Ryan, is what about porting everything to GTK3? Is that complete now in XFCE or are we still using some GTK2 stuff? I thought everything has been ported in their pre-releases. They were talking about all the right. apps in, in the notes that they were porting to GTK3. I can't say if every single thing is, but I know most of it based on the notes I was reading in pre-release 1, 2, and 3. It looked like it covered the wide gamut of things that they've got over to the GTK3 platform. So I would assume the answer is yes, but okay. uh, we'll have to see from them directly. The other thing uh, to kind of go off of what you were saying, Noah, with regards to XFC being so reliable. I, I agree with you and it it's my home. If I get frustrated at any point, this doesn't happen as often as I've gotten more experienced in Linux, but certainly back when I was new, when I would get frustrated with Linux, things weren't working, there was flickering, or sometimes back then in KDE, you'd go into it and you would have uh, hieroglyphics text or the menu would flicker when you, just little things and you just get annoyed. I'd go back to XFCE and just like sigh in relief because even though the update window is long, you know when you go into XFC, it's just going to work. You're it's not going to have work. stupid things. The, the only downside is that it does seem like they trail behind the rest of the desktop environment world as far as function and features, right? Like we're just now getting, I think this is the, is this, this is the release where they're coming up with the, uh, the thing to uh, where you can, where you have a hotkey to be able to search for, uh, to start up applications and stuff like that, right? I'm not sure if that features I, in here. I think that's I think that's what I think that's 4.14 that they were talking about doing that. But so like that's that's now just getting there. Unity had that back in 2012, right? Gnome had that back when whenever Fedora 14 came out, and now they're catching up. But you know what? Quite honestly, it was buggy in both of those systems. Like it never worked quite well, and just now we're finally getting to a point where all of those quick launchers, whatever you want to call them, are working very well. So again, XFC, when it hits XFC, at least you know 100% it's going to work the way you expect it to work. LibreOffice 6.3 has officially been released, and it comes packed with some exciting new features. One of the big callouts in their recent video promotion of the release is that this version of LibreOffice is faster, smarter, easier to use than ever before. They mentioned improved compatibility with Microsoft Office formats, which is a really big deal in all these uh, free yeah. and open source suites. Is Does it work with, with Office? Uh, it's faster at opening files uh, all around. And some of the other features include things like better layout, providing more space for working on your document, 
uh, redact option to hide sensitive information. It supports PDF A2. Page backgrounds now cover the entire page and not just up to the margins. Autocorrect has been improved. The spreadsheet tabs are more visible, improved calculations, additional options for calculations, Microsoft Visio file support in LibreOffice Online, and improved tip of the day dialogues. So I know probably most of us here have used LibreOffice at some point. If not, it's our default office suite. What do you guys think about LibreOffice as a project? And what do you think about some of the recent improvements with LibreOffice? I mean, I, LibreOffice is one of those main, the main uh, open source projects that exist for like, you know, showing off how good it can be kind of thing. I'm re I really like some, this thing is not that important, but I, I like the redaction option because yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of times where you want to send it to somebody, but you don't want to have like the details of your individual, like your name and like very sensitive information, making it right. possible to, to get to redact stuff like that without having to go in and edit it and delete it out or, uh, you know, print it and then like white it out and then or like put it into like a like gimp and then like put little boxes on it before you send it to them like that's such a, a it, it doesn't seem like it's that important but it actually is quite a nice feature the government's gotta love this feature you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> no I, I i love you know what i i really appreciate too is that there was a you know I like seeing projects that are involved with the community in a, in a deep way and there was a moment where we were talking about on one of our prior shows, um, the office suites. And I was talking about, I had to use only office to do a translation between some word docs that were sent to me from another company because they weren't quite showing up correctly in LibreOffice. So we get a comment immediately saying, Hey, let us know what that document it is. Can you open a bug report on this so we can get this fixed? So they're proactively going out there looking for ways to improve the tool. If there is an issue, they're out there communicating mm -hmm. with the community versus just ignoring it. And to me, that goes a long way in my heart, at least when, when people are out there in the community and interested in getting that feedback and getting those things fixed to improve the product. And I couldn't imagine us not having LibreOffice around. I couldn't imagine a world without it in Linux. It's such an important suite for us. And so I'm, I'm so happy that they have these awesome new features that they've added in. The talent there is insane and it just makes me want to use the product that much more. And I just can't imagine how hard it is to keep up with like the format compatibility with, you know, proprietary Microsoft Office, having to do all that work to ensure that compatibility, I'm, I'm sure is a massive undertaking. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it's oh, so yeah. easy now for the user to just use an online service like Microsoft uh, 365 to do their documents. So I, I'm really glad that LibreOffice uh, keeps going with the compatibility issues. And for me, when I open up, especially Word documents and spreadsheets, I don't know about presentation documents, but spreadsheets and Word documents typically open just fine for me with no formatting issues unless it's a very complicated spreadsheet. Yep. Do you think, in, uh, do you guys have the experience that the compatibility, backwards compatibility with Microsoft Office works uh, well most of the time? Yeah, most of the time. I, I rarely have issues, but uh, when I do have issues, it's because there's some some esoteric random formula that's used in a spreadsheet or something like that, like something sp specific to that actual format that the that Microsoft made. 
One of the things that I have run into problems with with LibreOffice is, and one of the reasons that we started to look for other alternatives, and there are other office suites that run on Linux, and one of the reasons that we started to go down that road is because of the compatibility opening native Microsoft Office documents inside of LibreOffice is particularly true when you get into presentations, right? The importation feature is mixed if all of your slides are going to look right or even close to right. Um, and but beyond that, I think LibreOffice is establishing itself not just as a good editor on Linux, but I think the open document format is beginning to establish itself at large. Right. And that's that seems like a positive thing. Yeah. And also the fact that when we talked about the the compatibility with OOXML, which is one of the things that like that's that's the format that Microsoft made. And when we talked about that in a previous episode, the fact that LibreOffice team actually came and contacted us to see if we could, if they could get the uh, the file that we, you know, that we were talking about, so they if it would be able to, they they could test it directly to see what was wrong, and that way they could fix it faster. Like that is an awesome thing, and it, now that they have the you know, the redaction option too makes it even easier to do that. So like as long, some people would want to send their documents in order to, you know, test to make sure it worked and whatever, see if they could fix the things. But being able to do that might make it easier to, you know, be yeah. more comfortable with it. I think you bring up an interesting point because this is one of those things where we preach all the time, open bug reports, let the developers know when you have an issue, don't just ignore it and go away and, you know, hop to something else. Um, at least try. Even if you hop to something else, still open the bug report right. because you're just helping make a better product at the end of the day. And, and this is a case where I truly believe um, that they will take a look at everything you send them and will do their best to fix it if it's possible. Obviously, like Derek mentioned, they're kind of dealing in an uphill battle in, in right. a lot of ways because they have to follow whatever thing Microsoft decides to change tomorrow and attempt to reverse engineer it and put that code in there for compatibility. The times that I've run into issues, I've, I use Excel a lot at work. I have to for all the calculations and mathematics and financials and things that we do. And I'm amazed at how many formulas that are in Excel work in LibreOffice perfectly fine in their calc sheet. Um, there are things where it doesn't translate perfectly, uh, but anytime I'm creating my own documents and I'm not trying to do imports and things, I have amazing experience and it's very familiar to me off the bat. But there are times, especially uh, knowing when you're talking about Word docs and things where if they put pictures or different types of strange heading formats and Items like that is where I start to see some of the compatibility issues, and I need to take it upon myself that when I see those, just to send it over to the team. So, yeah, I mean, also it's, the point out was like, yeah, the the bug report is also an issue where, where it is important for us to do that, but it is also worth noting that the documents that might have sensitive information is also a valid point for why people don't do it. And the case what we were talking about was a document that had sensitive information and we didn't really want to send it out to you know and they even asked us to send to like to remove stuff to make sure that that kind of thing so that's really cool that they are aware that that's a possibility and are requesting for it because you know bug reports are the only way that they can really test the experience that people are having unless people like show videos them and doing it and everything like that Uh, so that it's really cool that they were proactive about it and uh, but yeah, I think we in the future we will definitely be sending them files to make sure that it work everything works there at least what we experience. 
And getting back to what Noah was talking about, backward compatibility, LibreOffice having backward compatibility with Microsoft Office. Microsoft Office sometimes doesn't have good backwards compatibility <laughs> with its own Office that's suite. So that, that's a challenge for anybody. FFmpeg has a new release 4.2, and it's nicknamed ADA. Now, one of the things that that FFmpeg draws to mind is literally one of the most powerful tools ever invented on Linux. It's one of those things that everybody on every other operating system envies and wants to bring to their operating system. So some of the highlights of this uh, release include filters for T-Pad, ChromaShift, True HD Core, uh, MaskFun, AV1, Frame Split Bitrate, Color Hold, ASL, and more. Decoders uh, in fe uh, feature AV1, HYMT, ARBC, AGM, LSCR, and VP4 video. So if only half of this made sense, you're probably not alone. But what's important is that FFmpeg is the leading multimedia framework that is used to decode, encode, transcode, mux, demux, stream. If you want to do it with media and you're trying to do it on Linux, chances are FFmpeg is the pizza tool that's doing it for you. Even if you're using it on some sort of UI uh, above hand, like if you're using Handbrake and stuff, guess what? Really? You're an FFmpeg user because Handbrake is made up all up and down with with uh, with FFmpeg. Yeah. And so while it may not be the most exciting release notes to, re to, to read through, what you have to understand is M FFmpeg is one of the most important projects on Linux and the developers are continuing to make it better with every single release. And so this is one more opportunity for us to take people into the Linux desktop and say, hey, we have production tools that literally rival anything the professional world has, uh, if not entirely dominate the professional world, because even a lot of professional tools are using FFmpeg in the background to make a lot of this stuff happens. They also added support for using Clang to compile CUDA kernels in this release, and there's a long list. So you might want to make sure to check out the show notes this week and read up on all of the cool things that FFmpeg is doing. Show of hands, how many of you use this at FFmpeg at least once a week? <laughs> Yeah, and also like for people who are listening to audio, everybody. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if, if you do if you do anything with audio or video on Linux, then like it's it's the back end of so many programs that we use on a daily basis. It's not even funny. I think it's literally the only back end for every editor. Like I think pretty sure like when you do the actual encoding, it, right. FFmpeg is used for all of them. And it's and it makes sense because FFmpeg is so powerful. There are there have been ports for Windows and Mac as well, uh, but they they Linux gets the the stuff the the fastest uh, because the focus is on Linux. But like there's like I've actually used FFmpeg for a very long time, and I and when I say that I don't mean just like as a backend. I actually when I first started doing editing, there wasn't that much to do, and there wasn't many GUIs for editing. So I did actually learn the terminal aspects of FFmpeg, and there it's it's so powerful that yeah. it can do anything you want. You just have to learn like this really complicated syntax. Uh, but it is awesome. So I, every time I build something, I want to do like automation for the rendering, or I want to build something like, like if I do a potty, an audio podcast, I was to do and add the waveform. You basically write out this script that's in FFmpeg, and then it's consistent. So every time you want to run it again, it will automatically always work because FFmpeg is so solid. But the the one of the things that's really good about this particular release is the AV1 support. So if you're not aware, AV1 is a video codec decoder for uh, the, from the AOM Media Group. And this is actually a collection of many big companies as well as VideoLAN and FFmpeg themselves where they are uh, you know, build, building an open source 
uh, codec and format so that you have the that not, so you don't have to rely on MP4 in the future. So MP4 is the most like known standard format for videos, and MP5 is the replacement of MP4. However, uh, AV1 is a competitor to MP5 and is more efficient, uses less file size, and has a higher quality in the bitrate and everything like that. So the AV1 format is actually taking over in many ways from MP5. So that's awesome because it means that the not only is the standard is going to be open source, it means it's going to be the best option anyway because it's the best quality. And this is actually a format that's been... Or the AOA, AO Media is a like an alliance of media groups where it's a... Uh, people like Google, YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime, everything, all those video uh, services are all are backing this one group of creating the AV1 format. So I am super excited to see the, the support for FFmpeg so that you can, you know, now utilize that because, you know, it's so awesome and you can already use it in certain players, but now you can decode and encode for it. So I'm excited. Is this one of those things where I, I feel like there's certain projects out there that are completely unsung heroes in Linux that we use it all the time? Like you were saying, Noah, if you use these programs, you're using FFmpeg and you don't even realize it, that maybe don't get the donations or support that, say, some projects that may be more you know, forefront to people's minds where they realize they're using it every time they open it would get. Because I noticed they have a donations page out there for FFmpeg and hope people will can think about going out there and donating to it because it, it is insanely important. It's insanely important for you, Noah, yeah. and all your shows, me for my shows, Derek, everybody here. It's, but not, it's not an exaggeration to say that if M FFmpeg went away, away tomorrow, massive parts of the entire world would stop working. Like, yeah. I mean, like just everything inside of media really focuses around the fact that you, we have this that we have this tool and it's it's crazy because what the commercial world has learned when you value something when you like something uh you usually have to pay a company a lot of money and so it becomes a, a fight to see how low can i spend to get this tool like how far can i negotiate this price down right and that's the way we deal with, like any any sort of corporate world that's what they deal with is i want this thing i need it for my i need it so let's see how we can negotiate down people write entire books on on negotiation because it's such a major part of our culture and so when the open source when you introduce open source and freedom and the fact that all of this code is available on github now all of a sudden it throws a monkey wrench into our perception of the world because now all of these companies come up and they go wait we don't have to pay for anything it's just available we just hire some tech nerd guy that have him type some stuff into that flashy terminal thing we'll put him on the office at the end of the corner this would be great this is a great investment right the problem with that view is <laughs> things that the entire world rely on like oh i don't know ssl aren't really having the the same amount of attention that semantic gets for their antivirus program because there's even though it's even more important than semantic nobody's really focused like nobody's really focusing money on it yeah. and it's one of the things that that uh Air, that i think it was eric Raymond gave a presentation about self uh, about last year is hey we need to start supporting these projects and we need to start contributing money to them because if we don't they're not going to be around and if they're not around you're going to not like the world you live in when you wake up and find that there are all these zero days that have existed in this software that we all depend on yeah i mean everything is one of those projects that definitely deserves more attention like because it's so complicated people look at it as they, they would just rather use a GUI that helps them use it because 
Like, sure. And and the only reason I even experienced FFmpeg directly was because these editors didn't exist in the beginning of me using Linux. So right. that's and if and if I had an option to use, you know, one of the GUIs like Caden Live prior to you know my my initial usage of Linux, I probably would have and I would have ignored FFmpeg. And that's and and that's a shame because FFmpeg is so it's so important and not necessarily in the sense that people should learn to use it. It is very complicated and to the point where. When when people say like it's hard to install Archer Gen two, it's like learning how FFmpeg works is probably about ten times harder than that because it's mm-hmm. very specific in its syntax. And if you have the parameter just in the wrong location of the string, it will break. So it's not necessarily that you know I'm suggesting people learn it, but it is something that people should look into as far as like supporting them and uh, donating well, to them because to it be is clear. Powerful. There there are really simple syntax that you can use for. Right, right. MPEG that anybody anybody with any has ever opened a terminal could use. Sure. But generally, when I'm using FFmpeg, what I'm doing is I go out putting I the I what, and the O and praying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no. But what I do is I go out and I search for what I'm specifically trying to do and look for somebody who's posted the input string. Then I'll go in the man pages, look up what that string actually is doing, sure. and then I'll run it. And that's that's a good way to kind of get yeah. around. If you want to use no, FFmpeg for like scripting and stuff, it's really awesome. And there's right. a lot of copy pasta available. So uh, I think that it's it is definitely uh, uh, something you could check out that way. Uh, I just meant in the sense of like learning it as a main tool. It's not yeah. really that uh, reasonable to do so anymore because you don't well, have we to. Think we're going to include a link to donate to FFmpeg in the show notes. I just donated as well because this is one of those things where I realize I've used it all the time and never donated. But highly recommend people go out there and donate to that. Because I think it's a very important project. It's actually probably one of the most important projects in open source in general. Like you don't even have to say it's one of the most important on Linux. I mean, outside of the Linux kernel, it might even be one of the top three most important projects because of how useful it is and how it's how how much it is ingrained into all the other types of editor tools and stuff. Yep. So Pharonix has released some new benchmarks for the RX 5700 line. Now, this is the new GPU line that AMD released recently. Um, I love looking at the benchmarks for Pharonix. And when it comes to AMD, I love looking at the benchmarks, usually two months later when AMD has finally fixed the software issues that they have with their latest hardware. Because as much as I love AMD for their innovation, their software is generally behind in, in, in many ways. So uh, to really understand how well these cards will perform, you usually have to wait a month or two after their release and then benchmark them again. And you'll be like, wow, that's way faster than we thought it was going to be. No, just think about um, it in the fact that once you, your heart, not only is your card not getting slower and with time, it's getting faster with time. So it's actually a value <laughs> for you. You're welcome. That That is how AMD works. You get the card initially, you put it in, you go, hey, that's pretty good. And then you wait a few months, and you're like, wow, this is amazing. If only they could start there, that would be really, really cool. <laughs> like, it's like an early Christmas yeah. present, right? Exactly. exactly. So uh, this lineup was an awesome lineup that Pharonix did. And I think only somebody like Pharonix with the amount of hardware that that guy has in his studio could do a lineup this giant, which was everything from the Vega 56 line on AMD all the way to the 2080 Ti with NVIDIA. Uh, the results utilized, most of this was gaming, so keep that in mind. And so if you're not into gaming at all, then this probably won't impress you too much. But most of this utilized Vulkan and OpenGL, so they had a range of games between there. And he did some normalizing between the differences uh, of, or he did some normalizing in all of the results at the end to show which cards kind of reign supreme. So not surprisingly, in AMD's lineup, 
that is the Radeon 7, which is the GPU that I currently have, which is more of kind of along the lines I feel of as like a 2080 Ti in the NVIDIA line, where it's it, it's not a card for an everyday user. I mean, the 2080 Ti, for instance, cost $1,200. The Radeon 7 still $800. Oh. This is an enthusiast card. This is not something everybody should go out and get. But you would expect those cards with those price marks to be the best in their category, and they are. But the one thing I find interesting is the 5700 and the 5700 XT are in the 300 to $399 price range. So now we're into at least a more normal market of what most people were looking for. And it was only slightly behind the 2080 out there within fighting distance at that price within one to 10 frames per second. And you're talking about a card that nearly costs twice as much as the 5700. So to me, that was really impressive. Um, 2080 Ti obviously dominated most of the tests uh, as far as the median, but at $1,200, I certainly would hope so. So all in all, when I looked at this, what I could see is that the NVIDIA 2070 is around the $500 mark. To me, that's probably the best card in NVIDIA's lineup for price per performance. The 5700 XT being at $399, I think is the best bet overall. Uh, that people should be looking at if you're looking at a new card. Of course, you got the RX 580, 590s as well that have dropped in price. And and I did want to mention too, you know, there's a lot of flack that I received in some of the communities with my channel specifically when I talked about the fact that the 2080 and 2080 Ti to me were just really overclocked iterative upgrades that ripped off consumers. And it's not because I don't like NVIDIA. Actually, the best card they ever released, which I ran in my computer for almost a year, was the 1080 lineup. And I still think the 1080 is one of the best GPUs they've ever released. And But it's not know, super. Yeah. And now they've released the super lineup of that, which is another iterative upgrade. And it's really the cost that they're getting for these cards that is just insane when you look at what you're getting price per performance. It's just not that great. And so hopefully NVIDIA's new lineup, they'll stop with the super stuff. They'll stop just overclocking the same GPU and then sending it out and putting super excellent or great. But I've seen, uh, I've been vindicated this week because I've seen tons of tech channels come out. The big tech channels with millions of followers come out and say exactly what I just said now, uh, which is what I was saying months ago, that these 2080s and all of this new stuff is just really ripping off consumers in a lot of ways. Uh, I think the best card NVIDIA has out there is the 1080. Uh, if you're going to go with AMD, though, go with the 5700 XT because it's only a 10% difference in performance between that and the Radeon 7, which costs twice as much as that. So from AMD's lineup, go with the XT. And I actually ordered one this week just because. Even though the Radeon 7 I have is faster, the XT that I have coming is signed by Lisa Sue from AMD. So how could I not get Right, that it's a requirement. Card? Yep. Oh. Yeah, Absolutely. So Lisa Sue Sue is the CEO that basically has turned around to AMD entirely. You know, she's the reason AMD doesn't suck anymore. Basically, (laughs) you know, we know when AMD was completely ignoring Linux and uh, had only proprietary stuff for a very long Mm -hmm. time. Uh, It's been five years since that happened. And it's been five years since Lisa Sue took over. Yeah. She's also an engineer, not a typical suit. So it's, it's pretty cool to see somebody in there that knows this stuff inside and out pushing the company forward like this. And also want to mention that all of those out there who've been waiting for the AMD third gen support, rest assured, the patches finally came this week. So you can run any distro you want, but I still have to give a special shout out to pop OS for the speed at which 
they threw the hardware enablement uh, patches in for AMD almost immediately when yeah. the Ryzen 3 was released, allowing me to do any of the tests and benchmarks and utilize this on Linux at all. So really appreciate what Pop! OS did there. So big thanks to them. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Ryan, do you think that NVIDIA is overpricing some of their higher-end cards not to take advantage of the consumer, but maybe take advantage of crypto farming, you know, the whole craze around Bitcoin farms? and You know, a lot of people who are in the crypto mining arena actually don't utilize NVIDIA. So it, they, they can, but AMD was actually the most popular choice even back before they released these new cards for crypto mining. So I, I don't think they were doing it there. And crypto mining still hasn't recovered from its drop, although the prices have recovered, which me and Noah are thankful for. Um, in Bitcoin, we <laughs> the actual Bitcoin mining shops have not recovered. So you're not seeing a ton of people out there buying it. I think NVIDIA is not really, I don't want to say taking advantage of their consumers. They're taking advantage of being at the top. I think that they can charge twelve, thirteen hundred dollars. Nah, I would go ahead and they're, say they're, they're taking no, advantage of their consumers, considering they had exam they had one card and they made a super version of those cards, and they're basically overclocking of the same card. Yeah, in some ways, so. we know the dies were capable of going faster from the beginning, or at least it was theorized. Uh, out but it there also only took them like four or five months or something since when they when they went and they brought the super out. They're like, hey, guess what? You spent all this money on that other card. Well, this is better than that but not really because you could just overclock the one you already have, but we're still going to sell this one because reasons. I was trying to be nice, but I guess you're right. Well, yeah. I, there's, there's, <laughs> you could argue that some things that NVIDIA does that are great. Sure. You could argue that, but that's not one of them. That's yeah. I, I, I'm glad to see the competition here. I'm also glad to see the popular tech channels out there. Obviously my channel is not going to create a huge amount of influence compared to Linus with 2 million subscribers, but I'm so glad to see them starting to cover AMD more and, and, you know, starting to take a look at them again, because I think I've, you know, been one of the rare ones out there stating this and, and it's not as funny as it is to say that I'm a fanboy and stuff. I look for the company that's innovative and that's mm -hmm. innovating and that's changing things. And AMD was that company. And I'm glad to see other people were coming around outside of just the Linux world too, and seeing that yeah. and giving AMD another shot. Yeah. Even well, I, sw I switched from NVIDIA to a Radeon 7 because of Ryan, you know, nice. I'm watching his video yes. You know, he convinced me to get off, you know, the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. So when I bought a new machine, I went Radeon 7, mainly because of Ryan. Yep. How do you like that card, by the way? I love it. It, it, does, doesn't, it doesn't sweat, does it? It really doesn't. It handles everything. You know, I don't game much, but it, it's great gaming. But, you know, even rendering video, just, just anything you want to throw at it. With it the uh, 16 uh, gigs of a uh, high bandwidth memory on board, it's, it's more like, like a workstation card all, almost. Yeah. Yeah, and so, it's it's actually funny because you mentioned that you you convinced Ryan convinced you to to switch to to AMD, also uh -huh. convinced me to switch to AMD. That's why I have a Vega sixty four, and I'm actually going to be getting a new CPU that's AMD based. So I am I can't yeah. wait for that. Uh, yeah. And Noah, Noah, go ahead, your turn. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan sold me his MacBook, and it <laughs> and so I wait. Did you just admit to buying a MacBook? <laughs> yeah, you bought a MacBook. Yeah, he, bought, he bought it for he sold it to me at a great price. So I was able to get <laughs> Linux running on it, and so of course I found the Nvidia based. So you're saying not Apple only did I sell you a MacBook, but I left Mac OS on it. I didn't even have Linux on it. <laughs> no, I, Ryan sold me. Ryan sold me his old machine, and so I was very thankful because the the truth is, the, the, here's the problem that, that we do. And again, this is one of those things that, like, as Linux users, we just deal with, and we just assume that everybody else is willing to deal with it. And the reality is that most people aren't. And it's this: when I go to buy a new computer, when I got to upgrade my machine, I can't. I run a business. 
with my with my lab machine like it's my it's my home it's my baby it's where all of my stuff is and it has to work 110% of the time it cannot fail if it does i don't get any work done until i spend all my time working on it so if i'm going to go buy a new computer i have to know i have to know definitively without a shadow of a doubt that it's going to work and the problem that you run into with most hardware is even today in 2019 there's still the oddball thing that doesn't quite work perfectly with Linux. And so the thing that I was so thankful for to Ryan was I know with, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, this particular machine is going to work flawlessly uh, with Linux. And he has, I mean, you've done a really great job, Ryan, of convincing, I think, the whole world that AMD is a more logical choice for Linux users than, than NVIDIA. And I think that's only right now. And that's the important thing that I do want to get out is that mm-hmm. if it changes tomorrow, I go where the innovation is. If Intel, I sure. love Intel, and they do tons for open source, unlike mm-hmm. NVIDIA, where you can at least go back and say, well, they, they do very little for open source, and they have proprietary drivers and all this. Intel, you can say they have some bad things in there, you know, but at least they contribute a ton to open source moving forward and always have. So I always will have a, a love for Intel yeah. as well. NVIDIA, I think, and we, get, we have another news article where it looks like there may be some things coming around with NVIDIA. But to me, the moment it changes and I see a company pushing innovation and doing things new, that's where it matters. It's not always to me as someone who loves technology about being the fastest. It's about really pushing the boundaries of that tech forward. And when 7 nanometer came out, was it better than the latest Intel when it first came out? No. Was it better than the NVIDIA GPU? No. But it was completely innovative. And the rate to create uh-huh. seven nanometer dies is literally it's going to take Intel, they're saying, four years or more to even create it. So when I see a company doing that and I see a CEO that's pushing innovation, that's what attracts me. But the second it switches again, just like in my videos when I was Intel and NVIDIA and then I went to AMD, if it switches again, I'll be right back to the one that I think is innovating the most right now. To me, that's AMD. Well, yeah. so you're, trying, you're trying to make the, the case that you're not a fanboy. I am a fanboy of AMD right oh, now. Oh, I'm just making right. the case that I will switch when the innovation switches paths. And right now, the innovation's with AMD. Well, also, the, the, not only is it innovation, it's the, also the fact that they're the only GPU open-sourced approach company, period. So exactly, like yeah. Intel is talking about making their own GPU. And when they do, that'll be great because it'll be too open-sourced and NVIDIA will be the only, the only odd one out. Uh, but you know, right now, AMD is the one that's pushing it. And that's that's why I support AMD is because yet they even if they are might be slightly slower, they're the only open source company that does both CPU and GPU and definitely the only GPU one. So that's why that I is the problem, though, is that they are the only one pushing it and they have the worst drivers out of the GPU, meaning that they're not yeah. supported initially on a especially I'm talking specifically about their new release stuff. Yeah, obviously. True. You have something that's my experience has been old. fantastic because it was a year you're later. You're going to have a fantastic <laughs> experience. RX 580, RX 590. At this point, the Radeon 7 is going to be a great experience. But if you go to their new stuff because of how they release their driver into the kernel and because of how hardware enablement stacks and kernel updates happen in a lot of the main distros, it's actually not a great experience, you know, out there. And which is why I was so thankful for what Pop OS did which was patch those issues immediately. But we really need the other distros yeah. to get out there and start working with AMD. Yeah, we definitely need that. But at the same time, I still I still support AMD because of the open source. But, but we there's because they're both sides that need to be doing something that only one is doing the action. I think that kind of like, but still, I mean, thank you very much to System76 for doing Pop OS like that. Yep. 
Hawaii has released a new open source OS. Now we've talked in the past about Slashy Slash, and now we have another player entertaining the mobile OS market, and that is Harmony OS. Now Harmony OS was introduced by Huawei during their uh, developers conference. Harmony will be an open source operating system that supports smartphones with a wide range of other devices. The platform will support a range of apps from HTML5 to Linux and Android apps. Huawei says that they don't plan to replace Android right away, but this is essentially their plan B being built out. The first is running the OS will be a smart TV. The platform is more of a competitor to Google's up-and-coming Fuchsia, which is moving away from Linux, given that both can be used on multiple devices uh, at once. During the presentation, Huawei said Android isn't as efficient due to its redundant code, outdated scheduling mechanism, and general fragmentation issues. Huawei also had some PR issues with their alleged integration of the Chinese government. So I, I guess let's start with this. Does it seem to you that every company is hedging against Android to include Google who invented Android because you have Samsung slowly but surely replacing every single Android app on their phone with their own, you know, Bixby and all this mm, other crap that they have. They're, they're slowly phasing it out. And you notice something when the newest version of iOS comes out, everybody's excited. Everybody freaks out. Oh, this is great. The phones are going to be faster. We're going to get new iPhone 10. It's going to be so fantastic. Oh, I just love iOS. Everybody freaks out when the new iOS comes out, right? You don't get a lot of rabid fanboys coming out when the new version of Android comes out. Why? Essentially, all we're looking for is security updates. And I think that's a sad state and really exemplifies the non-existent future for Android. I think at the end of the day, something else is going to have to come out and replace Android for the open source side. Because let's face it, Android has literally become the windows of the mobile operating system, right? Yep. There's no real control. There's no real unification on what version everybody is going to be on. There's no consistency. Every manufacturer has their own little twist, just like HP and Compaq and Dell had their own twists on the version that shipped with Windows 98. And it came with different tools and utilities. And There's no standardization around this. And manufacturers are getting sick of it. Google's getting sick of it. Uh, it the, the users are getting sick of it. Like, how does how is this not? I mean, what's what's your take on this? I think Android is a perfect example of what's what like what uh, Ryan was talking about earlier in the AMD thing about innovation. Like AMD, I mean, uh, AMD is innovating, and Android hasn't innovated in years. Like they 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 give like small, you know, iterative improvements and stuff like that, but they don't really like it. Took them a long time to be able to give you permission structures, but that's not really innovative anything. That's just you know finally getting to the point of doing something that they should have done years ago. And like I, I used to be interested in Android when it was like you know the the cupcake days, like those like the, in, in like the donut area era, like those mm -hmm. were interesting because yeah. they were actually doing innovation. But now it's just like yeah, whatever. Like it's a, another. This to me though is so exciting, not from the aspect that of of the fact that Android's uh, boring to people, but I, I guess because Android in fact is boring to people is why it's so exciting yeah. because maybe a third player can come in. Noah, you have convinced me. Uh, you know, about the fact that while iOS may have, and, and there's certainly lots of issues with iOS, but there's nobody who's going to spin an OS off of iOS. Whereas Android, there's this capability that somebody could at least take that and innovate it with it. And that to me was something I had never looked at before. And I think really was a brilliant insight into it. And when I look at things like what the Ubuntu Touch team is doing, when I look at what they're doing with E, when I look at what they've done with Lineage OS, this to me, these are the groups that are innovating. These are the ones that I hope one of them or all of them will be the future of the mobile OS. I just think that 
their, their ability to get the funding needed to compete, truly compete with something like an iOS and actually get into the telecoms to actually sell phones for them or manufacturers to build phones with them is going to always be an uphill battle. It's interesting to me to see Huawei in here because you're talking about a company that actually very much has the money to go up against the big yeah. Goliath, at least at this moment. Now, the problem is that it's a double-edged sword because Huawei is also, whether you believe it or not, there is tons of conspiracy and information out there about Huawei's involvement directly with Chinese government and potential yeah. spying and all these allegations out there that make it, is this going to be something that we would even want to use over here in the U.S.? So I'm excited and then I'm also like on the fence with it because I think they could actually create something to compete. Yeah. Well, the problems with Huawei and the U.S. government in particular is the reason they're looking to build their own operating system. Of course, Android and Google is based in the U.S., so they, they want to do their own thing, right, and decouple themselves from, from Google. Yeah, it makes sense why they're doing it. And I think that if they were to, if they were to announce – when they first announced that they were going to make this OS, I was thinking, hey, I don't care. Like, there's no chance they'll ever use this. But then they announced that it's going to be open source, and they're like, okay, maybe there's a chance We're that this... We're getting close, right, like, yeah. That having a company as large as Huawei doing this makes it very interesting with the open source aspect because it means that the people who are worried about the integration with the government, for the Chinese government, could look at, like, you, there's almost a guarantee that this code will be audited. I would be. I would actually. I'd be comfortable saying that there's at least a couple companies that will be auditing this code because of how impactful that it could be in this in the in the mobile market space. Uh, so, I think it'd be very interesting to see what those results of the auditing will be, and if it has and it comes out to be a clean, uh, true to form open source OS. I think it has a huge possibility of being impactful against uh, Android and Fuchsia, and I think that'd be great because uh, you know. With with Fuchsia, with Android, you have a a boring system, but it's based on Linux. Fuchsia doesn't even use Linux at all, so right. I don't even I don't think they've actually announced Harmony OS and what it uses as its kernel. I'm not sure if they've even said so they yet. They said it was a micro kernel, but I'm not sure what it's based off of. Okay, well that's that's Con not going to be Linux. Cons but. Consider this: Huawei and Samsung and Sony and LG, they don't care really what software runs on their phone, if you think about it, right? They, they don't have some sort of blind allegiance. They just want to sell more phones. Right, right. And so the advantage to us is if we can, if, if we as an open source community can do what we've always been very good at in the past and develop systems that work better, we can develop the FFmpeg of mobile video. It won't matter if we have funding or don't have funding because all of those companies that come together and, and Samsung, they're all going to look over and go, oh, here's an operating system. We can do what we want. That's, you know, easier for a bottom line. It runs better than Android. It runs more efficient. It's maintained. But there's this great thing. Now, they might not give any money back to the project per se, but they will take their money and use that to push that mm -hmm. operating system that they've loaded onto their phones into the public. So I can see a way forward, even in a world in which you, like, Apple buys up all the Gorilla Glass. So there's literally no possibility of somebody making, you know, a, comp a competing phone to, to the iPhone, right? Like, even in that world, I can still see a way forward. I just worry for Huawei, even if they create this fantastic product. And let's say, like you said, Michael, it's open source. It gets audited that people will do what they're doing to 
frankly, Android and iOS right now, I don't know how many articles a week I see with these, oh my gosh, you, your vulnerability, you better patch it right now if you're on iOS, all 1 billion users, and you go in there and you find out they're saying FaceTime's not secure because if you happen to be passed out and somebody slipped special glasses on you uh, then, and then pulled your phone up to you, that the face recognition will fail. Like, th- this is insane how the news is kind of goes out there and beats up on companies. And Huawei is a company that's very popular for people. If there's any security loophole, if there's any mistake, they're just, just going in general, to just because, they're, just them, because right? they're from China, they're going to get pounced on. Like, yeah. That's, so that's I, I feel like they're going to have a constant uphill battle. The good news is they have a lot of money to it. Their first um, devices that will run this actually aren't going to be phones. They're going to be TVs that are coming out. So their new right. TV be the first ones to run this, but this is basically their plan B. And based on the battles going on between the governments, likely they will have to fall back on plan B at some point. But it's interesting too, because we've also talked about how important the apps are, that they're creating a compatibility layer with Android apps. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Wine, anyone? <laughs> exactly. Like I think that the thing is, it's actually pretty smart that they're doing that because by making their own OS, if they don't have the apps, then it doesn't matter that this OS exists. So they have to do something to make it work. And that's and Google did the same thing with it with Fuchsia. They're making it possible to use Android apps because they don't really have a choice. They have to have something that supports it. And with uh, even with Linux, we're working on something like that with uh, the Anbox project. And that's be awesome because you can yeah. use Anbox in Ubuntu Touch. You can use it. In your, hopefully, you, I haven't tested it for myself, but you could use it in PostMarket, I hope. Uh, but the, I, I can't wait for there to be an actual competitor to um, to Android and iOS. I don't know if that would be Harmony OS from Huawei or something else. And uh, I kind of want it to be something else that's based on Linux. Uh, but, you know. What if I told you next week Ubuntu Touch may be coming on our podcast? Would that be exciting? That is definitely exciting. It might be happening, folks. Uh, let's do it. Canonical's Martin Wimpress was interviewed recently on the subject of snaps. And we're going to have a link to the article in the show notes. So check the show notes for all the details. But we've selected a few highlights here to cover that were really interesting of this uh, pretty lengthy interview, actually, from uh, from Martin Wimpress. The article was written by uh, James Sanders over at yeah. Tech Republic. Um, Martin mentioned that uh, snap packs date back to the old click packages. You guys probably remember click packs mm-hmm. from the uh, Ubuntu phone days. So snap packs actually predate both Flatpak and AppImage, I believe. Yeah. Martin said that like Flatpak and AppImage, the goal is to provide self-contained software. Originally, it was designed for Internet of Things devices because, you know, that, that software on those devices doesn't get updated very often where snaps or the old click packs were auto-updating. And you could pr- pretty much target them for any class of application, whether it be server, cloud, of course, now focused on the desktop. So he mentioned that flat packs and snaps, they handle the self-contained packages the best. And he criticized app images a little bit, saying that they still make some assumptions as to what's installed on the host operating system. I actually hadn't heard of that criticism before, so I'm not sure on that, but I'll take Martin's word on that. The next question he was asked was regarding their editorial control as far as the snap store. So the question was about flat packs that are not tied to a central hub like the flat hub you know they, they can you can have multiple repositories holding flat packs right where snaps have this central snapcraft.io hub for all the snaps and 
People have been critical of that. Many people, actually. I, I was actually kind of critical of it myself initially, but I understand why they do it now. It kind of makes sense once you think about it. Martin states that there's multiple reasons why they do it. It's because people are comfortable with a centralized app store, and I, I get that. It definitely makes finding applications much easier when you know there's only one place to go get it instead of you know just scouring the Internet for packages. Right. So it makes discovery a lot easier for those that are using the Snap Store. Martin provided some examples of huge spikes and downloads that occurred when introducing apps in their editorial picks section on the Snap Store. So when they feature certain apps, they always get a huge spike in downloads. So people actually do check out the Snapcraft website and the Snap Store. Yeah, I think you it's actually... You guys look at when you see in your uh, phone store or something when they're like editors picks. Do you guys go into those right away? Because I always do. It's kind I, of interesting. I tip it. I look at the editor picks just because it's a lot easier to see like a featured list and then we're like, or, or there's anything I actually care about, then I'll go look, search myself. But if I can have like a quick access where I don't have to do that, that's really nice. So I do. I always look at them because I'm always yeah. thinking, is there something I'm missing out on, like a cool app or something that I'm not oh, aware yeah. of? And so I've done that before too. The uh, picks, I, I like it. I think well, it's I think interesting like, because the, the, the repo is a good – is one of the things that I've always talked about how I agree with the centralized repo structure. And I think that centralized repos are very important uh, to a universal format because if you don't have a universal store to go to, then you're kind of breaking the point of the universal format. So That's when, not true. Well, yes, it, it is because if you don't know where the where to get the files, we, what is the point right. of having those okay. formats if right. you don't I'll, even I'll, know where I'll, to go? Okay, all right. Windows has a universal installer, the executable or the MSI. There is no one central place to find all of the installers for Windows, and it works great. But even Windows even made the Windows Store for that exact. I understand that, but they're just following. But, they're just copying. But that's diff that's di that's an argument of like there's an exception because it's so gigantic, and they don't really have a like people have for a long time didn't really have a choice what to use, so they're just forced to do whatever the mechanism provided to them is. So it's not okay. really an. Ex I don't want to say that it's an example of making the point mute. I think it's an example of Windows is so huge it didn't really even matter. I guess I can see that. It probably makes curating your repository easier if it's all in one central location, too. So. Yeah. I mean, it makes it, it's a lot easier for the developers and for the users because if like if for uh, like Flatpaks, for example, when Flatpak first came out, and you when they when they were talking about how like you know there's a lot of Flatpaks you can check out before the Flathub came out, which is like a year and a half later or so. Before that came out, you'd go to the Flatpak website and they would show you like ten. And you're like, right. well, these are like, where are the rest of them? Like, how do I find them? And they were like, well, there's repos here and here and here. And he's like, no, thank you. This is not worth and, the effort. And doesn't it seem like with the Flat Hub website that the Flatpak guys have kind of figured out that they need that central hub like yes. Snapcraft? Yes. Yeah. It, it took them about a year to realize it. But after a while, they did see that having a central location does make it way more useful. And, and because of that, I think Flat Flatpaks have improved tremendously. I, right. I love using them, whereas before it was a little bit too much of an annoyance. And I kind of had stuck with that until we did an episode talking about Flatpaks and people were in the community talking about Flathub. And so I went in and I started typing some different flat packs I wanted to find. And it was just like snaps, yeah. right? Where it, it just would pull in regardless of where it was, where that package was, the package that I needed to choose to install. So they've done a tremendous amount of improvements in, in that front. Yeah, I think yeah. that the, the interesting thing about it is that I, I was kind of setting it up to say that the, the centralized repo is very important. But I much prefer the way that Flatpak's doing it, where it's a centralized repo in the Flathub, but you are not required to use that flat that that repo 
as a user. Like if you have a co- if you're a company you want to you want to deploy FlatHubs, you can create your own repo and also interconnect right. with FlatPaks and the FlatHub. You can have both of them at the same time. That's that's a great a- approach to it. Whereas the Snaps, if you want to do your own repo of Snaps, you kind of have to break the the support for the central store. So if you you can technically do it, you can have your own Snaps, but it will also break the regular Snap store, but, and I think but, that's a bad idea. But when you do that, you're you're hosting your own flat hub. Isn't that a lot like hosting your own PPA? Um, well, it's kind of like that, but it's 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 like hosting your own repo, yeah. But I would say, and it's instead of like a PPA that anybody could access, it's more like what if a company wants to build their own in-house applications and then they want to deploy it through Flatpaks? They wouldn't want to put that in the FlatHub because it wouldn't be useful for everybody. It's just inter- internal stuff. This way, okay. they could use Flatpaks as a format and use it as their own repo and still have the benefit of not losing access to FlatHub. And also having their own repo. Now they they can have both. Whereas if you use Snaps, you have basically you have to use their repo in order to do that. And I think that's that is a bad structure in my opinion. Uh, but like so, example in comparison, really right? right. I don't like I like the fact that it has a central store because that's an important. I don't like the fact that that's basically the only option. Well, the article of the interviewer mentioned, I actually asked Martin about that as far as the uh, Snap servers being uh, proprietary backend. And um, Martin basically answered that that's partly due to legacy from when it transitioned from click packs to Snap packs. The, uh, the click uh, backend, the servers were all proprietary. So they don't have any plans to ever open source the Snap store because they really don't see a point in or uh, a meaningful benefit to them for doing that. But that is a criticism they have gotten from the community. Am I the only one that this answer, and this has nothing to do with Martin because this is the answer Canonical was given period, uh, rubbed them the wrong way. That no, I think we that's are, it. We are talking about free and open source software. That's what we're all pushing. And then Canonical's like, yeah, but we don't see any reason to make our proprietary right. software, not proprietary. Does like, that actually benefit us in any meaningful way? Uh, yeah, the open yeah. source ec- ecosystem is definitely beneficial. That's a weird thing. To, I agree. That's a very weird. Well, I mean, we wouldn't it. criticize you as much. I, I get that maybe Canonical doesn't see it as a benefit for them, but I think it would create some goodwill with the community if they chose to do that. Well, yeah. he mentions in there specifically that they did this with Launchpad. They open sourced it after people gave them some flack and afterwards, no real development efforts occurred from the community. So that, that does not. I, I don't know. There's just something about that that just doesn't strike me as is is that is it just me or does that strike no. anybody else as weird? Well, this the, whole I, thing, I'd say it's weird because is weird. the reason why people didn't support, you know, didn't like focus on like, oh, Launchpad is now open. Great. People didn't jump onto it because it was not using Git. It was using Bazaar and people right. didn't like using Bazaar. So it's like, why would they help working on the pl- the platform that uses a, a version control system that no one wants to use? Even Canonical and Launchpad realize that no one wants to use it, and that's why Launchpad supports Git now. So, like that is that's why they didn't jump on the Launchpad. So that's not a good example. Like yeah. with with Snapcraft, people have submitted code because they did open source the actual tool to make it, but they didn't open source the server. So I'm like, that's the only piece of Snaps that are not open are is essentially the server structure, and that's just kind of okay, I guess, if you want to say this particular server is not needed by everyone because it integrates with Launchpad and integrates with the Snapcraft system and all this other stuff. It's not needed for that to be. But to make it where you have to use that and you can't use a separate repo in addition to, 
or they don't make their own as an alternative repo. It's like, hey, if you want to do your own repo, here's the software to do that, and we'll have it separate because you don't necessarily need Launchpad to integrate with your GitHub account to connect to Launchpad and all that other stuff that they do. I get if that was the approach, but they don't do that either. So I'm kind of... um, I'm but a fan of the snap new. structure, but I'm not a fan yeah. of that decision. This isn't new from Canonical, though. I mean, you guys remember the old Ubuntu One cloud service? All of that was proprietary, and people criticized them about some of that as far as well, the back Well, let's not forget about the contributor license agreement, right? Right. So, I mean, the, I mean is, the, that's, a, that's a different thing. The CLA is different because I don't like that as an argument. No, it's no, it's not different. It's, it's, it's this idea that we're an open source company. We're producing open source operating system. We do everything open source except for these little things over here that we don't do open source because we want to protect our business interests. Well, the, the, okay. Well, that's different. Or meanwhile, we want to encourage every other company to go open source. That's I'm right. saying it's different. I mean, it's, the same thing. It's, just, it's the same principle that leads us to the thing we're talking about today. I agree with that part. I'm just saying that it's that the that you could say that Ubuntu CLA is a, a, is something that would be annoying. I'm just saying that CLAs in general are not something that are annoying because of the fact that it just says that they're able to relicense it. So if they use something in one of their tools, they're not going to be sued by the person they're using the software from, even though that software. You really was, believe that? No, yes, because you the really so- believe it's that you well, really the believe FSF that. believes that too because they also not only have a CLA, they take over the ownership of your code. If you submit code to the FSF, you don't sure. even own it; they just take it. So, like, not only do they not have a CLA, they have a, you give us your code. And I, I think that's more egregious than a CLA because you still own the code. You can still do whatever you want with it. But mm-hmm. there's just a company that you're giving access to use it. Allow, you're allowing them to change the a way that they're forced to use it versus the FSF where just, eh, it's ours now. Well, Canonical is a very large corporation. I'm sure some of this is pushed by lawyers to help them. Sure. You know, likely, sure. Yeah. I just think I just think that it's that I don't think that's a fair uh, statement, but just because of the fact that there's other examples that are way more egregious than just mm-hmm. the you know. Well, you guys gave them. quite a lot of examples. I think some of those maybe before I even joined Linux, so I wasn't aware of some of them. So I think that's interesting. I was kind of shocked by it because I honestly, to this point, uh, until very recently, had not realized that they would even have something proprietary like anything they released. I just assumed would be open source. They're an yeah, open that's the way Red Hat does it. Yeah. I mean, I was- it's similar with Red Hat, SUSE. You know, they all have proprietary stuff in their, you know, products. But yeah, they're they corporate, s- right? There's, there's sometimes where they start proprietary and then release really quickly. Like Red Hat yeah. starts stuff for, for sometimes proprietary and then they release. Like what? Well, systems so System D was was not open for a couple of years, but they also weren't right. pushing it. But as soon as they started pushing it, that's when they opened it. So like it mm-hmm. wasn't like. They were like, you know, there was no reason to share it outright in the beginning because it wasn't ready to share. But as soon as they were ready to share it, then it's bam, it's open. So like that, because that's, that's kind of like how they should do it in-house development. They don't want people to be using something they're not comfortable using themselves. And as soon as they were, use, were comfortable using how it. How do you go yeah. on one foot and say, like Noah was saying, hey, I'm an open source company and this isn't just canonical. Apparently you guys just busted my bubble with OpenSUSE and Red Hat. Um, hey, we're an open source company. We no, want I think to encourage I think, everyone who I think comes here to do open different. source. And then you say, well, gee, I don't want to give that out there because that's kind of like company proprietary stuff. I don't want to open source that. Isn't that talking out of one side of your mouth and doing another? Kind of. I think that Red Hat and Scissor yes. are not are not in that situation because like, to say that something that's in-house that you were not intending to release yet should be open, I mean, that's kind of problematic. I think once you decide to publish it, then it should be open. And I think that Red Hat does that. 
Interesting. So in the last comment here, Martin has asked about some controversy about the community. Clement from Linux Mint apparently at some point said or called Snaps a threat um, because it should be governed by all and not just canonical. And Martin did reply to that and said that uh, they've done a lot of work to make Snaps work in other distros such as Mint and Fedora. He finishes stating that branding is generic for Snap and they could have made Snaps a canonical only thing if they wanted to or put the branding all over that it's canonical no matter what distro you use it in, but they chose not to. Um, So they're kind of trying to play nice across the aisles uh, was how he answered it. I don't see I don't see what the uh, the criticism from Clem at Mint is all about because Mm -hmm. Snaps work just fine on every distro I've ever tried the Snap store works on every distro I've ever installed it on. Well, and there's there's no, I mean. You use the snap yeah. plugin for Fedora right now. It's not going to work. <laughs> well, but as far as like it's a, an Ubuntu only thing, they remove a lot of their branding. Um, and they're trying to make the snap store branded with the distribution you install it on branding. Like if you install it on Fedora, you know, it's going to have a blue background and the Fedora logo, you know, they're, they're taking all the Ubuntu and canonical stuff off of it. So I think that is a good step. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a bad criticism. So, uh, okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I actually, I support canonical in a lot of things. Uh, but this is this, this statement just in my opinion does not fit that well of uh, what I previously supported them for because the devil's advocate advocate approach is, or the comp or that, that that perspective is yes, that you can use snaps in the, in, in any distro. And that part is, you know, not governed by them, but snapcraft themselves, the, the snapcraft tool itself is governed by them. The, the, the snap store of where everything is stored is governed by them. So, the the if you want to like we talked about how the the server is not open source so in order to use the snap store you have to put it in canonicals their control like not necessarily the control of they control your snaps or whatever but they do control the the location the repo that is for snaps you you're not likely going to be using snaps without the snap store because of how it's built yeah. so well I, I my my only thing about that is much of what is in the Snap Store, of course, is proprietary software that's not in your traditional repos anyway. You're going to have to go get that from some third party regardless. You know, you're going to have to trust somebody. Where, whatever website you go get that from, where it be a, a Deb or RPM sure. or so. I mean, I agree uh, with that, but I'm just saying like the way that Flat, flat Hubs themselves, they, you could put a, a proprietary app store uh, piece of software in the Flat Hub, I think. Um but I, I'm pretty sure you can because I think there's a Skype one or something. Um, but uh, you can technically do that with the snap with with the, the Flat Hub and still have that centralized structure because the Flat Hub is open. People could su- support it, and Flatpak are the people who are controlling the Flat Hub. That's true, but it's not like y- it. But the the code for the Flat Hub is still ex- accessible. If anybody yeah. could come in. Let's say if um, the makers of Flatpak go rogue and turn into this evil empire people could go in reproduce it since it's open source create their own and forget that the flat pack folks that initially created it even existed what you're saying whereas in the snap case if canonical went rogue and turned into this evil company nobody could really do anything that everybody relies on snaps because because they have the control of the repo and they also have the control of the tool that makes all the packages so like in a sense, I'm not saying that they. And obviously, it's this fantasy land we're talking right. about. Right. This is a, this is just a devil's advocate approach and saying that yes, 
uh, that they are currently in the open aspect of it. But there are pieces where I I understand what I don't know if this is actually what what uh, uh, Clement said. I'm not sure if this is why he says this is his reason, but I think that that is a valid point because there is a possibility that they could be doing something eventually or whatever. I mean, maybe if, uh, you know, when when a, a Canonical eventually goes to an IPO and they get shareholders and board, board of directors and, you know, 15, 20 years down the line, Shuttleworth is no longer a part of it or whatever, and then the board of directors decides to do something horrible – in 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 possibility the possibility is there because of the way it's structured so is it a threat i wouldn't agree with that but there is a possibility at some point that this could backfire because of the fact that the server is not open or i don't know i just think that there's a there is some valid critiques to it because i don't think that saying that snaps are available in a different distro or saying that the snap store is usable in another distro is a valid response because i don't think that that's really the point that clement was making you think he's talking about canonical owning the server right that's the server and also this like you only make snaps with the snapcraft tool like that's the only thing that and who owns the snapcraft tool it's it is open source but even if you only have the piece to make those snaps and that that part's open source, but where you put those snaps is the part. It's still is still proprietary. I mean, well, there, it sounds you could like, argue that there is a threat, but I'm not saying that there is. I'm just saying that I kind of that's what I think that he's you know talking about. Do you think all the criticism that people uh, throw at snaps and flat packs is eventually going to drive more adoption to app image? <laughs> I mean, because people no, love to criticize. No, no. I love app images though. So I, would, I think no, I no, love there's app no, images too, nobody is working on advocating for app image. Nobody is working that's on not it. Right? True. App that is, no, that is true. There's we kind of are. <laughs> Because I no, love app yeah, images. Sure. Okay, fine. There's funny, plenty of people that will, if, if asked about it, they'll say, "Hey, I really like app image." But we are there's. I mean, now that I say this, this is all going to change after this. So let's go ahead and mark this time. And <laughs> oh, we will. Up until <laughs> now, up until now, it's not like we've had a bunch of the developers from app image or or dedicated an episode to app image. And of course, all those things are coming now because we have to prove Noah wrong. But <laughs> you're right. <laughs> advocating for app image, like it's it's there. Like well, you're saying, they don't mark it well. I mean, that's really boys. They don't have a. I, they don't have a I, company. Behind them, exactly. That's what I'm saying. There's no company behind them pushing for it. Whereas Canonical is flying these people out, yes, developer summits and saying, "Hey, you make Skype," and they're all sitting and going, "Uh huh, we make Skype. Why are we? What are we doing here? Well, you're going to make it for for flap or for you know for um for snaps. What's a snap? Well, here, let's show you because we have a presentation ready. And so they play the presentation. Okay, we can probably do that. All right, go ahead and make the snap then. Okay, and you're not leaving this room till you're done. (laughs) <laughs> well, but I mean, I, I, no, but I mean, that's, I, I, you know, honestly, though, and I say this, it's it's a good thing, but that is the way that it's presented. But that's to me, find the people that are doing that. And they, they say, hey, let's sure. sit you down. We'll put you down. If you if you think it's going to be difficult, we'll put you down in, in the same room with the people that develop snaps. So if you have any questions, you can ask and then make software. There's no other company that's doing that kind of outreach. That's why Canonical Who dominates at the end of the day yeah. when you look at it. Yeah, because Red Hat has the chance to push flat packs. They have the chance to do the same thing Canonical's doing. But the fact is Canonical is the best out of everybody at one aspect community outreach and building from the ground we kind of talked about this last episode too and like they nobody does it better and you're kind of and and noah's actually arguing against himself from last week that canonical (laughs) does kind of do that i i don't i don't i acknowledge that canonical does a lot of outreach my concern my concern with any organization ever is always intentions right is canonical outreaching to the community because they're 
organically interested in what the community has to say and they want to make a product that serves the community or they're reaching out to the community because they know that's the way to get the support to make their company worth more money so they can sell it. Yes. And I don't know right. what the answer to that question is. I'm just it asking. might be both. Like, here's the thing about this. Like, Canonical is one of those companies where they started with the best intentions. I think that I, I, I'm, I promote, I mean, I, I sure. defend Canonical in so many ways because when they started, Linux needed them. Like very much it needed them. Mm-hmm. The ecosystem was not easy to use. It it was you know it wasn't for human beings essentially you know based on their uh, their tagline. Yeah. But I think it, that that maybe they've kind of strayed away a little bit from their their original like mission. Uh, and I think that that is it, it's possible. And I'm not saying that they have. I'm just saying like based on some of the decisions. And I and I typically defend Canonical in in most of these cases. Like people talk about how the Amazon thing was horrible. It wasn't. You just didn't understand it and automatically went hyper hyperbolic on it. Like there's and there's other things that happen all the time. Like people raging on Unity, even though they had to make Unity because GNOME was not. Now everybody usable. talks about how much they love Unity and right. how much they. That's right. Exactly. So it's like. Make up your mind, community. And then people who were, you know, like I talked about in previous episode where people were losing their minds on the what side of the window the close button was on. It's like, that's not that important. Uh, so, like, there's there's different things I would defend them on. But I, it's very hard for me to defend them on having a single repo that is closed. Like, I that just think part- we have to come to the realization that Canonical and these companies that represented the desktop, in my opinion, now are more interested in the cloud stuff because that's where the money is and making a business sure. decision. That may very well be the best business decision for them to make. But I think what that does is it opens the doors for somebody from the desktop to come in and become the next Canonical for the desktop because you're right. Without them, our desktops would probably be no, not even so just out of curiosity, who Just out of curiosity, what does that company look like? I would love to see yeah, somebody too, but I don't think there's if it's if it's not gonna be canonical, red hat or Sousa, who's this gonna be? I mean Well that that's the interesting thing. It's gonna be somebody who actually sees the money potential there on the desktop, which it amazes me, frankly, that no company sees any value in it. It's it's actually kind of surprising that to me that Red Hat doesn't see it because they made yeah. flat packs. Like if people are not aware of flat packs are made by or funded by Red Hat and and the and the flat packs were designed specifically for the desktop, yet Red Hat themselves don't really push the desktop that much, and it's kind of surprising because mm-hmm. they, it's like they they have their fingers in so many things that are fantastic, but they're not. It's like they don't really have a full focus direction other than the servers and the and the enterprise, and I think that like Canonical is like the only company that does focus on the desktop in in many ways. And it's weird because we're talking big companies. Yeah, Obviously, big companies. Lots of distros sure. out there do. Yeah, but the snap packs, the snap packs are great on servers. They is, are. Is the interesting thing. Yeah. If you want to quickly set up a lamp stack or set up a Nextcloud server, oh, you know, yeah. these the snap packs are just dead simple. But yeah. we kind of had we kind of had that problem solved with Docker containers, right? Like, right. It's the same concept. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like the, 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 the thing that made Snaps amazing were, is because it brought container technology to the desktop. And I feel like I feel like that's something that cannot only canonical right now could do very well. Right. I feel like if anybody right. else tried to do that, it wouldn't make it very far. Yeah. I mean, that's not not, not necessarily in, 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 uh, that's not a bad point. And I think that the weird thing is about, about this is that I'm a fan of Snaps. I have used Snaps. I have made Snaps. I have looked at how they work, and I even made a video a couple of years ago about how 
like what what they are and what and how they're useful. And I think that they are a really cool piece of technology. And I and I I, I wish all the best to Canonical and the Snap Team. It just feels a little icky, I guess, a little sketchy, maybe that they have the repo still locked down. And that's the only problem I have with snaps. Like, if that was not the case, if the repo for that, I don't think there would be an issue of being making a claim about there being a threat. Because if they were open, you wouldn't have to worry that there's no op- there's no alternative. Like, right now, because it's closed, there's really no alternative unless the community builds their own repo. And that I think that's kind of weird. But at the same time, I think any company, any other company that that's you know, in the size of like Sousa or Red Hat could come in and do it and take and take the, the take the reins. And I would love to see app images be a bigger part of this this conversation in general uh, in the farthest community goes because app images are really cool. They have some issues, of course. But they, they do, do need a big company to come in if and, and do the marketing side of it. And again, sure. I think Canonical's success is this article is a perfect example. Was it perfect and all the answers I wanted to see? No, some True. of it really surprised me. And it wasn't the answers that make me personally happy, but I'm sure other people in the community look at it and like, eh, whatever. Um, but the fact that this was out there and that the person asked some really tough questions and Martin was open enough to go out there and answer them, whether we like the answers or not, without a bunch of business speak or just, you know, um, sound bites. Yeah, in there. I didn't he, use any time. I, I didn't see any look at reference. That's synergy. not Martin Wimpers, right? Like I, I know the guy. Well, right. that's why I'm saying it's so he, great. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a, he's a down to earth person. And regardless of what I think of, uh, regardless of what I'm unsure about Canonical, I'm 100% sure of his intentions, right? Yeah. He's a hardcore desktop Linux advocate and hardcore desktop Linux user. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's also worth noting that people, when we talk about, if, we, if we're mentioning anything negative about a project, we're not talking about the individuals a part of that project. Almost ever. Yeah, now, when we talk about Tux Digital, the owner plays a yes, significant portion to our dislike of, of Tux Digital. Good to know. Or, like DistroTube, we're specifically talking about Derek, but with That's Michael, right. we're talking about how we don't like him. Okay, right. good to know. Good to know. I'll, 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 I'll note that in the, uh, in the... I'll put a note in the show notes for people who would like to check out Tux Digital as well. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that it's it's just point wanted to point out that we... We're we're fr- friends with most of the people who work at Canonical. That we, I mean, everybody I've talked to. We I, were I, until today. Well, well, maybe maybe that's true. <laughs> maybe that's true. When does this episode um, come out? But it's just that's it's just to say, like, even if we have something a disagreement, we don't like something that said. We're not necessarily saying that there, we have anything against the people who are a part of it, and that goes for much every project, uh, apparently, except for Tux Digital. <laughs> So up next in the show is the is is actually kind of a little bit of a, a somber topic. It's a little unfortunate because well, it's not little. It's really unfortunate uh, in my opinion because there's it, it's the Linux Journal has to say goodbye again, and uh, the Linux Journal is shutting down its doors for good, according to the post on the Linux Journal website that was posted on August seventh. All of the staff were laid off, and the company is left with no operating funds. And this is a definitely an unfortunate situation, and it's ha- but it's happened in the past, and this is weird because this is the second time it's happened. And I have probably a not so popular opinion on this happening because the people who made the decision, I this is actually kind of makes it sketchy for me. But just just to, to talk about the the writers of of Linux Journal have done a lot for the, over the years, and Linux Journal's been around. I mean, pretty sure the, the Linux Linux Journal was created by Red Hat uh, CEO or the founder of Red Hat, and I think that um, it's 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 such a g- important thing that's been around for so long. It's like it's basically 
been around almost as long as Linux kernel because Linux Linux Journal was started in 1994, and technically, wow. and technically the first ver, first 1.0 release of Linux kernel was in 94, but the, the technically the project of Linux started in 91. But like that's such a huge legacy for this company to exist, and I, that's why I think it's a shame that it's gone. Um, and 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 it's actually kind of interesting because like the article that was what was written was was funny, and it makes you want to read more from the journal. So it's a shame that that you're no longer be able to do that because the article was talking about how you know it's we're saying a goodbye again and then the, the, my it was it was fantastically written in the sense that they were talking about how you know how when you go to some, you're you're, meet, you're going to be in a business meeting or you're just hanging out with friends and then you decide to you know say your goodbyes and you're starting to leave and then you realize you're leaving in the same direction and now it's super awkward. <laughs> that's how they describe this. Yeah, that's how they describe this as how they feel super awkward of having to tell you again. It's like that I, that's such a wonderfully written uh, you know struck article about that. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out cuz I love that analogy cuz it's so perfect. Um, but to me, I think the weirdest thing about this is that they didn't apparently have any notice that this was going to happen. Like, yes, they needed to make money for the company to continue to sustain it, and I get that. But it looked like to me, like, they, they released the August issue. They released a new podcast episode from their podcast, and then, bam, it's gone. Like, it seems very sudden. And it bothers me because Private Internet Access came out in early 2018 and said, you know, they're basically going to come to the rescue of Linux Journal. And there was this huge press about how Pia, uh, Pia is saving the Linux journal. And then a year and a half later, the exact same thing that was happening previously, like they, they, it's a magazine. I mean, t- just think about it. It print, <laughs> print uh, journalism has suffered a heavy blow in all facets of topics. So it's not surprising that they're running out of funds, but the whole point about you're coming in and saving the, this company to give it another chance, and then that chance only lasts a year and a half when they needed to have more time to build up a, a, a new model. And they had created new models of how they're making money and stuff like that, but didn't, I don't think they had enough time. And I just, I just feel this feels a little sketchy that they're like, well, you didn't make enough money quick enough, and it's, been a, it's only been a year, and it's like, ah. Eh. Really, what you're talking about too is the the when we don't know what went on behind the scenes, but you're talking about the suddenness of that it even seemed like in the article, and I'd agree with you. It seemed like that all of a sudden it's like, okay, your funding's gone, you're gone. Yeah. Everybody's laid off, shutting down everything. And and I would agree with a company as big as Pia that has received as much support from the open source community as Pia and much support that they've given back. You would think there would be, and hopefully there was, you would think there would be a time period of talking this through like, hey, at the six month mark, we need you to have made money by now. You're not making money. And if you guys don't make money by this date, we're going to have to shut the business down. So, you know, and things along those lines to build up to this year and a half, maybe where Pia, I think year and a half is long enough if, if Pia doesn't want to continue a business no, after that. No, no, no. I think it's, I think it's long it. enough if you create a business and it didn't work, year and a half is fine. It's not long enough when you come to the rescue of a company that's already said that they don't have a funding model right now to sustain the company. You know for a fact that it's losing money and you come to the rescue of that company. And then that money, that company didn't sustain the money that you knew was going to happen in the first place. Like, I think it's not enough time, especially in the sense of the Linux magazine or just magazines in general, needing to refocus their entire structure because magazines as a medium is essentially dead. I mean, right. even there's there's Mark. There's, no, it is dead. 
Right. I mean, there's except for except for the back of the airline seat and Sky Mall magazine selling right. you stuff you never knew you needed. With the exception of that, magazines are dead. Right. Everybody has gone online. So like and that was the problem is that Linux Journal just never really adapted to being a web magazine. Right. But if they start they changed it's they did do they, they they changed a lot in the past year. Like they ch- they redesigned I'm their talking website. About, I'm talking about from the marketing perspective, internet sure. marketing, SEO. You, you you don't find their journal their, any of their articles online. Uh, when this news broke the other day that their Linux Journal is going away, there's probably a lot of people reading about it that have never even heard of Linux Journal. That's true. That's I, I think that's a very valid point. But I think that that if if I've been in marketing for a very long time, and in SEO I've also been doing for a very long time, and it takes a long time for a company to create an SEO. Uh, place in the market, especially when you're doing something that is what they're doing, where they release once a month a, an issue of of content like that. So, and I think that they were they realized that they needed to do that. They needed as they started doing more articles on their websites, they started doing news and that stuff, and they started doing podcasting. I think that they were on the path to become sustainable, but they were not given enough time to do so. And it seemed like it was just, and I just don't like the fact that it was promoted as a rescue. You just don't want it to be gone. Just say how, what's in your heart, Michael. You missed the Linux Journal already, and that's okay. That's pretty much true. But I, it's, um, it's just the whole rescue thing bothers me. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Well, well it looks just, like Kyle and perhaps some of the other staff are now employed by Purism, which is interesting because on Kyle's profile at the bottom of the article, it states now he's the chief security officer at Purism. So my hope when I hear articles like this, uh, because I've been in companies where they've done layoffs, I know the impact it has on families uh, where you suddenly don't have a paycheck. You've got to get Cobra healthcare insurance if you're in the United States, mm-hmm. which if you know about that. Yeah. Um, so hopefully these employees find a good spot as they seek in new employment out there and all of them land on their feet. And yes. I am sad to see this project go and I wish them all the best on their journey. Absolutely. And I hope all the articles are archived somewhere because I, we don't need to lose that information either. Right. So, yep. I, I, well, I, there is actually some efforts in archiving. Like you can actually get all the articles issues for currently right now. If you go to their website, you can get from now to 2005, but getting the older ones is a lot harder. No what is wrong with you guys? Uh, you don't need the archives of the Linux Journal because if you want to stay up to date with Linux, you just continue to follow Destination Linux. We'll have all the information for you here. That's we true. will do hours wow, of meticulous won't. research so you don't have to. If there's something relevant to the Linux Journal, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Michael has it all backed up. That's why I didn't have any hard drive space. <laughs> <laughs> or his NAS plugged then, in. And that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. It's but, all on the NAS that's disconnected. Well, for a second, <laughs> I thought I wasn't the marketer for a while because Noah just jumped in and took over. Yeah, man. And Noah can roll with stuff like nobody's business. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about uh, CryptoLocker hitting Michael. <laughs> yeah, because it's not hooked up anyway. <laughs> NVIDIA is finally coming around. We've said it on the show that competition is a good thing. AMD brings a stronger portfolio and delivers it with open source drivers. It appears that NVIDIA is now taking note, at least a little bit. This week, NVIDIA released some GPU documentation out on GitHub. The goal is apparently to help people with the development of the NoView Novu driver. This is a very welcome news, Nuvo. even if it's just sampling. The, is it What is it? Nuvo. 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 Nuvo, not Novu. Why is the why does, O? Why doesn't he do a how do you pronounce that? That would yeah, be. Why don't, yeah, if there was an episode yeah. of how to pronounce Nuvo. It will, it's going on the list. This is a very welcome news, even if it's just sampling their chip hardware interface code. This is an incredible... Uh, the incredible developers of the Nuvo 
driver are also likely happy that they won't have to reverse engineer every piece of code. Now, NVIDIA has said that there's more to come in the future, but what's there today was already a multi-year undertaking. So it would be amazing to see what NVIDIA, uh, it would be amazing to see NVIDIA go to open source, much like AMD and Intel have. Um, and we will have a, we we'll, might reach an might reach a point where all of the Linux ecosystem runs perfectly on all the platforms because all of the code is open and so we can all make it work together. And I think often, to be honest with you, as a person who doesn't dig into the nitty gritty of, of display drivers and stuff like that, I guess to a certain degree, it sometimes kind of surprises me. Uh, I forget that there's somebody there that has to actually reverse engineer the entire driver display system for it to work on Linux. I kind of just assume like, oh, I guess... Uh, I guess Ryzen just or AMD just tends to work a little bit better than uh, Nvidia. That's not entirely true. No, it's it's the the work that the, the Nuvo people have been doing for a very long time is so incredible. important. Like, yeah, because they 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 were they were given basically nothing, and they had to reverse engineer everything to make it even be able to boot. Like without the Nuvo drivers, you wouldn't be able to boot Nvidia hardware to even get the proprietary drivers. A company in the first that place. spends hundreds of millions of dollars on research and development for drivers and keeps them proprietary as they possibly can. A group of developers from the Linux community came together, reverse engineered that code, and made it work on Linux. Just let that sink in for a moment. Like mm -hmm. the talent is insane. Yeah, and it's also like it. That's such an important thing too, and it's but it is good that. That, that NVIDIA is finally doing something, you know, uh, good. Open source right. I mean, just ethically <laughs> yeah. good. I mean, whatever. Um, so Wow. Like, well, Shots fired. I'm just saying. Well, well like, here's the thing. They, 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 my favorite part about this is that they've released this documentation, and they previously released another batch, like because they got a lot of press about releasing a documentation in the past. But everything they released last time, they knew what people already knew, and it was just a confirmation. And I'm going to go ahead and say this out here. This would not have happened if shows like Destination Linux didn't take the hard stand against NVIDIA where everybody else was kissing their butt and praising them and putting and making it easier to install and everything else. We took the hard line that if we're going to support open source, we should support the open source hardware and NVIDIA needs to do more in the open source world. And what do you get a month later? You get them open sourcing some drivers. Was it us? I don't know, but I'm going to take credit for it. I agree. Fist bump. Cool. <sighs> I think AMD and Intel is what got NVIDIA on this train. Probably. <laughs> right. Derek, I, don't, I don't think Derek, it was Destination Linux, but I'm just throwing that out there. No, it was us. Probably. You're probably right, Derek. You're probably right. <laughs> no, it was us, Derek. Kick him off the show. The NVIDIA fanboy. NVIDIA <laughs> fanboy. Yeah, yeah, he's a fanboy. After like we're calling him that now, even though he's our he tens, already switched even to AMD. On AMD. Right. Our, I mean, our ten our tens of listeners uh, are uh, is what really uh, is what really changed it. Not they the, know how much this show makes NVIDIA hundreds company. of single dollars. At the, at yeah, right. The, yeah. <laughs> they know the kind of influence we wield over here. Do you know how many ten dollar bills are going to end up into the market for this? <laughs> well, I think Nvidia is probably going to do more open source, mainly because. Obviously, Wayland doesn't work at all on NVIDIA right now, and they want the open source community to do the heavy lifting for them on getting right. NVIDIA and Wayland. So that's yeah. The, I yeah. think I think there's a, there's many factors that actually goes into it. We'll we'll pretend that we have a zero point two percent, you know, market share of the decision. Um, but 100%. There, <laughs> sure there. But there's been a lot of things, and it is interesting that they're doing it because you know the EGL streams issue was like when they went to the community because they wanted to have Wayland support. When they went to the community and people were like, like the KWIN developers or the Mutter developers from GNOME, like when they said like, hey, we're gonna we need you to do this, and we're like, no, 
we're just no, we're not going to do it. Like if if you don't open source it, that's your choice, but we're not going to help you do your work. So yep. it's, it is what it is. If people want to use Wayland, they're going to use AMD or something or Intel. And I think that's part of it, you know, and, and also having the massive competition from AMD and now Intel is getting into the GPU space. I think there is, you know, I think they're just, they're, they're feeder to the fire and they're finally giving in to things that they should have done a decade ago. Basically, we're winning. Open source is winning. That's what you're trying to say, Michael. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a new game, Space Mercs, has finally been released. Now, we've talked about this a few months back during the development cycle of Space Mercs. This is a Bearded Giant Games, which Bearded Giant Games is awesome because their tagline is, we do Linux first. So they released their game on Linux first. That is their priority. And I just love so much this indie development company out there. They describe themselves as an extreme or describe Space Mercs as an extreme arcade space combat game where the amount of projectiles and lasers on screen is only toppled by the amount of stars in the universe. Will you be able to complete the mercenary missions and become the best pilot in the galaxy? So there is a lot to love here, including the graphics of the game. This is not a pixelated game. This isn't a platformer. This is a space 3D combat game out there. I think uh, kind of a toned down wing commander style game. I've been in there playing it and enjoying the heck out of it because I'm actually a patron of bearded games simply because of their tagline, but now because they make great games simply Um, because they didn't have Kofi. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. They didn't have Kofi. So I had to be a patron. Um, They have basically this game includes huge real time spaceship battles, hundreds of spaceships on screen at the same time. Mission battles range from small three to 10 ships and scale up as you get through the different missions to up to four to hunt, four to 500 ships shooting at each other at once. There is a single player campaign where the stakes increase every mission and thousands again of battles and craziness going on. Now I will say one thing that I was really about to get on to the stream and say, wow, I really like bearded giant games. I love that they put Linux first, but I can't see any of the enemies and things aren't working right. There is a setting in the game called fog. And I don't know if it was on by default, or if it's something I accidentally clicked on when I was going through the settings. But if you put on fog, the game is terrible. And that was the first 20 minutes of me playing it because I could not see a single enemy that was shooting at me. So if you have that experience, turn off fog. Once you turn off fog, I absolutely love the game. I've had a blast with it. I've been playing it with the gamepad, the Logitech uh, controller, and enjoying the heck out of it. Um, It's also worth mentioning the game is only $9.99. But if you're a patron of the show or patron of Bearded Giant Games, you got a free copy of the game, um, which I thought was also another awesome way of giving back to the community. That is very cool. And finally, Jason Evangelo, uh, Evangelo, who we interviewed recently, uh, he interviewed Bearded Giant Games developer on episode three of Linux for Everyone podcast. So go check that out because you kind of get a lot of insight into the gaming industry from him. And the fact that he basically gives a call out to other developers that have made the statement, oh, I only make 0.1% of my money in Linux. He said, that's funny. I make over 30% in my game because I actually market that my games are for Linux, whereas everybody else just throws a copy out there and never supports it and doesn't right. understand why they only have you know, 0.1% of their sales are from Linux. So he's thinking, Very good he's point. basically stating there is a lot of market out there and you can make really good money with this and I'm proof of it. And uh, I sell 30% of my games through Linux. So there you go. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's, it's kind of funny how people were like, like the marketing 
is a very important piece. And the fact that he's pointing out that if he goes out and tells people about it, like we talked about Bearded Giant games before on a previous episode, but one, it was they made some cool games, and two, their name is awesome. And, uh, you know, there's that. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, we've talked about it before. And then the only reason we did is because they're go- they go out there and they market to people and they get their name out there. And if a, if a game is out on Linux and they don't tell anyone that it's there, then, yeah, of course, no one's going to buy it because we focus on supporting the platforms that support and reporting the companies that support our platform. And that's I mean, the no tucks, no bucks thing is a very common phrase that people say. And we would happily do it if you support, you know, if you support Tux in, in Linux, then we would do it if we knew that we did it, yet you did it. Like, for example, there was this one company I was trying to get, uh, you know, to make some software on Linux. And they were, and this was fairly recently, and they raised, they made a response on Twitter saying that they, they've they been wa- watching the, uh, stat, the traffic on their website and they would you know they only they get less than one percent traffic from linux users and stuff like that and then they're like that's why they haven't made a software for it and i responded to them saying well the reason why you don't get a lot of traffic on your website is because you don't support linux and why would anyone promote to linux right. users? why would i go as a linux person go to your website yeah you like why would anyone bother and like and i told them like mm-hmm. i didn't even know your company existed and your software existed until a mac user was talking to me about it like mm-hmm. that that's why you don't get a lot of traffic is because you don't tell anybody that you would you'd even be interested to make a version or you'd even you even and like in the gaming sense you, you don't tell anybody that you already have a version so of course the it's not going to be that high because they don't people just just like anything if people don't know about it how can they buy it and you shouldn't have to beg people to port their their software over to linux i mean you're you're trying to give them money they they should want it there you go sure yeah. true so the software spotlight, get a lot more playtime out of your laptop battery using TLP. TLP is designed to save power, for, get you more battery life. TLP helps to op- optimize battery life by leveraging advanced power management capabilities. Comes with a nice default configuration, lots of ability to tweak under the hood. This is a common question that comes up a lot of times in support forums and IRC chats. How can I get more battery life in Linux? TLP is the answer. It's yep. got a great command line uh, utility that's simple to use. There's also GUI front ends that they don't advertise very much, but there is like a, a Python GTK front end to it as well that's pretty simple to use, although I think it's in beta. Have any of you guys checked out TLP? I use it all the time, and it adds hours of battery life to your laptop. I mean, it obviously depends on your Mm -hmm. laptop, but I have gotten so much more performance out of my laptops using TLP. If you have a laptop, you have to use TLP to see how amazing the optimizations that they're picking here truly are for getting the most out of your battery. And if you have an ARM laptop, it's even more ridiculous how much much extra time it gives you, because like I tested it one time when I had like the ARM laptops are already have a ridiculous amount of battery life because they're based on ARM and they're more efficient. Uh, and then I put TLP and it added like an extra 10 hours. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And there are extensions, so, you know, depending on laptop models. I know there, there's some uh, plugins you can add to uh, get more out of uh, ThinkPads. For example, I run ThinkPads so you can even get better performance out of your ThinkPad by installing some plugins for TLP. Nice. So the tip and trick of this, of this week 
is actually pkill and kill. These are, pack, are packages to send signals that are that are able to. Uh, you can actually send various different signals for various processes, but most, mostly it's for to uh, be able to kill a, a process that is you know having some. It's hanging up or it's it's frozen in your system, and you you need to you know kill it. And it's in the window itself is not is not you know functioning properly. So when you click the X, it doesn't do anything. You can go in the terminal and you can just run this command to uh, kill it. And you can actually find the list of uh, things you can do in the, like using the man page and dash help that'll show you like how to get the IDs of the windows and that kind of thing. And also in the show notes, we'll have a, an example for like uh, pkill dash nine is an example of, of as, as a, to getting rid of like the pesky programs that, like I said, that won't, that won't quit at all. Uh, so it's just one of those tools. that's really useful and it's probably available on your system already. Uh, so it's definitely worth checking out if you if you do need to know it because you can have that in your at back of your mind. If that ever happens, you can just run this command to do that. Uh, so basically, it's a way so that if you're if you need if you're trying if you're running out of time and you want Linux to shine, everything's gonna be fine. You just pkill dash nine. Wow! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know, it's funny. I use xkill pretty much as my exclusive destroy a window that won't go away, but there have been times when even xkill, not very often, but even xkill, I can't get it to drop a process and or I couldn't get to xkill to come up in a particular moment. Actually, it happened a couple of weeks ago during the show and Zeb was like, pkill-9. And I was like, oh yeah, I've gotten so used to xkill. that it, So there are times where maybe xkill won't come up or the GUI won't work uh, because of a desktop crash, especially in GNOME being single-threaded. So you can do pkill-9 and or do a top and get the PID number and then do a pkill-9 in the PID that you want to kill or the, the uh, sequence or the software that you want to go away and get it back. Or Somebody asked me what the TAC9 was like and I'm like, the best way I can explain it is like, just imagine, like, instead of, like, you know, people are like, oh, the computer's never starting. I'm going to unplug the thing at the back. Just imagine if you took a machete and, like, slashed the wire. <laughs> like, ah, power ripped out. You're done now. It's it's a priority structure is what it, is what it is. But, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It's just, like, I refuse to let you not not kill. But... I wasn't asking. <laughs> so, peak kill is literally just yanking the plug out. I love it. No, the, yeah. dash, the dash nine part specifically is, like, there's yeah. different priorities you could say. And it's, like, if, if there's a, like, there's might be a conflict where, like, maybe this will not close if there's a one particular example and it dash nine is like i don't care what you're saying that might not work it's just going to close it basically forces it to die no matter what yeah yeah (laughs) right it's the nuclear option (laughs) it's the nuclear option stop it (laughs) perfect So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it, to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and Kofi supporters. Okay, coffee supporters. We do a live show for our patrons, so come join us. If you want to be a part of the show, you can join for $1, and that's darn near free. That's right. We're now on coffee as a way to support the show. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that allow you to pay the same and get the same perks as Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes and on the website to join Kavi. The perks include things like access to live shows and unedited version, as well as our most sincere gratitude. So please get back to us and let us know what you think or ask your burning questions via numerous methods. Email comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, all the ways you can find us are there on our website, destinationlinux.org slash contact. Please keep your comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear ways we might improve the show. 
Yeah, and also there's, the fun doesn't stop here. We have more content on our own channels. You can check out Ryan by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb's content uh, where you can find him driving at crazy speeds, moving aside caravans, and all, all the stuff that get in his way on his live streams at youtube.com slash Boss. You can check out Noah, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays at the AskNoahShow.com. So you can talk, you can call in and ask him about Linux questions, business and tech questions in general. And you can also find my content by going to TuxDigital.com, where I do an in-depth weekly Linux good news podcast, This Week in Linux, and other Linux-related content. And also be sure to check out DistroTube, where you can find Derek making content on all types of Linux-related content. And you can go to uh, distrotube.com or tuxedo.com slash distrotube. Wow. wow. <laughs> I, knew he, I knew he was going to put it in there. He knew it. I had to. <laughs> so so uh, be sure to like that smash button and share the show on social media. And uh, everyone have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. All right.